Good afternoon. I really enjoy coming over here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Greg Shepherd. I'm normally based in the um, SICUP in the mornings, but I always have fun when I come over here. Uh, you have a really great group of, uh, of people. It's really wonderful worshipping with you. Um, we're going to be continuing our series on MOVE, looking at ways in which we can move forward as a church. And today we're going to look at the whole area of God's concern for needy people. Can you all read that? I did the font size a little too small, but you can see that all right, Alistair? Yeah, great. Thanks. So we're going to look at this passage from Luke 5 to begin with. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. I want to start by asking you a question. How much of a person's world does Jesus want to transform? And the answer, of course, is all of it. We can see in this passage how Jesus ministers to the whole person, how he transforms this man's life and meets his earthly needs as well as his spiritual need of salvation. And I want to talk to you this afternoon about God's heart for, need, for poor and needy people. You see, over the centuries, the, the church has struggled to get this right. Some churches over the years have focused so much attention on social action and helping people's physical and material needs, great though that is, that they've ended up diluting doctrine about repentance and salvation. But on the other hand, some churches have gone the other way. And while rec rightly recognizing that everyone's greatest need is for forgiveness and salvation, they end up not giving the message that Jesus cares for the whole person, for their physical and material needs as well as their spiritual needs. When we look at what the Bible says and at Jesus' ministry in particular, we can see that our Lord is extremely concerned about people's welfare as well as their spiritual condition. So if we just focus on people's physical welfare, we aren't preaching the full gospel. But if we only focus on their spiritual condition, we're not preaching the full gospel either. Jesus is interested in the whole person, and he wants his church to reflect that, and that's the challenge for us this afternoon. So this morning, we're going to look at who are the poor and needy in today's world, who are the people we should be seeking to try to help, and then second, God's heart for the poor and needy, both in the Old and the New Testaments. And then we're going to look at how we should respond. And we're going to come back to this passage in Luke 5 because I think it's got some important insights. So who are the poor and needy? We're going to spend a few minutes thinking about poverty 
absolute poverty, relative poverty, and then other types of need. So absolute poverty. This is defined by the United Nations in 1995 as a condition characterized by severe, severe deprivation of basic human needs, including food, safe drinking water, sanitation facilities, health, shelter, education, and information. And if we think about our world of approximately 7.6 billion people, 1.3 billion people live in extreme poverty on less than the equivalent of one pound a day. Isn't that shocking? Three billion live on less than two pounds a day. And in fact, 80% of the world's population live on less than the equivalent of seven pounds 50 a day. 25% of the world's population are without electricity and 10% do not have access to clean drinking water. So a lot of the world is in absolute poverty. In the UK, there isn't really that type of absolute poverty, maybe a few isolated incidents, but it's, it's fairly rare. But we can think about relative poverty, which means low income relative to other people in the same country. The economist J.K. Galbraith, don't often quote him in sermons, said, people are poverty poverty-stricken when their income, even if adequate for survival, falls markedly behind that of their community. So it's really about equality, about is it fair that some people have more and some people have an awful lot less. There are different ways to define relative poverty, but one simple way to think about it is this. If you think about the average income in the UK and then you halve it, it's people living on less than half the average, and on that basis, approximately 20% of people in the UK live in relative poverty. But of course, that's not the end of the story, because that's just talking about material things, but there can be other types of poverty as well. So, people who are oppressed. In the Old Testament, we see God's concern for those who do not receive justice, and there's many people in the world who are oppressed, some are even in slavery, not receiving justice. Poor in spirit, there are people who are depressed, have mental health or other issues. Then there's the whole area of people being relationally poor. People have recently, I don't know if you've seen it in the news, but talked about an epidemic of loneliness and it's thought to affect around 9 million people in the UK. If you think about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he was a guy who was materially rich but relationally poor. Nobody wanted to hang out with him. And it's interesting that when he meets Jesus, Jesus identifies that need and offers to spend time with him because Jesus immediately knows uh, this guy's needs. So let's look at God's heart for the needy. Let's look at Psalm 68. If you were God, how would you choose to have yourself described in your word? Well, let's have a look. Psalm 68, sing to God, sing in praise of his name extol him who rides on the clouds rejoice before him his name is the lord so an awesome and mighty god that's not a surprise that he describes himself in that way but maybe the next bit is a father to the fatherless a defender of widows is god in his holy dwelling god sets the lonely in families and then similarly in psalm 146 it says he the lord upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. This amazing, mighty, powerful God defines himself in his word as someone who's interested in, in fact, focused upon those who are weak and vulnerable. And just to explain, in Old Testament times, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant were all very, very vulnerable groups of people. You know, if there was any change in society like a a famine or an invasion or social unrest, they could be literally just days away from starvation. Now, I I don't know about you, but we can sometimes get a bit kind of over-familiar with this, that this is how God describes himself. But in fact, it was utterly revolutionary at the time because in virtually all the ancient cultures of the world the power of the gods in other religions was seen as being channeled through and identified with the elites of society so it was the kings and the princes and the nobles who were seen to be the ones that gods were interested in but our lord no he says no it's it's not those people i'm focused upon it's the vulnerable it's the weak Some people in our society have talked about, oh, we want to get rid of Judeo-Christian values, failing to realize that all of this concern for the weak and the vulnerable comes from the Bible. And in the Old Testament law, you can see that the, the Lord pays particular attention to the poor. Deuteronomy 15, it says, Give generously to them, the poor, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Now, it'd be tempting to say, oh, if there are always going to be poor people in the land, then you can't fix the problem, so why bother? But no, what it says is there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Right through the Old Testament, there's this emphasis on care and concern for the poor and the vulnerable. And there's also a concern for justice. Micah 6 verse 8 says, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. There's a particular Hebrew word that's used for justice. It's called mishpat. And this word occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And it basically means means treating people equitably and giving them their rights. In English, we use the word charity, but the trouble with the word charity is that it kind of implies that it's optional, that it's a nice to have, a nice thing to do. But the emphasis in the Old Testament was much more on it's an obligation upon you to meet people's needs. So let's move on to the New Testament. Well, as we know, Jesus didn't come to abandon the Old Testament law, but rather to fulfill it. And we can see how this... His ministry continues what's set out in the Old Testament. Luke 4, Jesus went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus didn't just teach on sin and forgiveness. He was intensely interested in the welfare of vulnerable people. When Jesus was born, who was his birth announced to first? Well, it was announced to the group of shepherds who at the time were considered to be a despised profession full of very unreliable people. And you may feel that shepherds are still very unreliable. Um, When Mary and Joseph presented Jesus in the temple for circumcision in Luke 2, there was a designated offering they were supposed to bring. It was set out in Leviticus 12. Leviticus 12 says, when you do this, you have to bring this offering. But if you're really poor, you can bring that offering. And Joseph and Mary had to go for that option because Jesus was born into a very poor family and he lived his earthly life much more around poor people than rich people. And his teaching advocated a continuation of the open-handed giving that was set out in the Old Testament. Matthew 6, when you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Because God is concerned for the poor and the vulnerable, we, as his people, should also be concerned for them. The people of Israel, the people of God, were charged in the Old Testament with creating a culture of social justice for the poor and vulnerable to display God's character and glory to the world. And that carried forward into the early church. So in Acts, the early chapters, coming of the Holy Spirit brought a number of things but one of them was a, the, resulted in the meeting of needs across the early church. Acts 4, 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. And in Galatians 12, Paul talks about a meeting that he's had, a really sort of major meeting with the apostles. And they sort out doctrine, make sure that they're all in agreement. And then they talk about strategy of taking the gospel to the known world's really big stuff and then there's one other really important thing it says Paul says all they the apostles asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing I had been eager to do all along her care for the poor was right at the heart of the early church's mission and the overflowing kindness that was within the church overflowed to impact people outside the church the Roman emperor Julian despised Christianity but he said nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers the impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor but for ours as well when the church reflects God's heart for the needy it impacts those who don't believe 1 Peter 2 says live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God's calling on us is to respond, to move on in this area. So, how do we respond? I want to focus, first of all, on our attitudes and our hearts. So, three things. First, gratitude, not entitlement. See, when I read those statistics of how 
absolute, you know, the absolute poverty statistics of so many people in the world having nothing, it brings our own standard of living into sharp perspective. I think it's very easy in the UK to take for granted just how much we have. I mean, just having food on the table, a roof over our heads. I know the NHS is under severe strain, but we have healthcare. Many, many people in the world do not have those things. And I think it's so important for us to always have that attitude of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, that I have these things. I'm so blessed. Thank you for your continued provision. And that's a great attitude to the the culture of materialism and dissatisfaction around us, people always wanting more, you know, always comparing themselves with the guy down the road with the new car or whatever, or coveting what other people have. No, Lord, I'm so grateful. I'm going to be content in what I have because I'm so blessed. Next, mercy, not judgment. In reading those Bible passages, it struck me again just how merciful our Lord is. You think about coming to him Needing forgiveness when you know you've messed up on a daily basis for me. Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. When we go to him, he gives us mercy, not judgment. And his call is to treat everyone else with mercy, not judgment. And when I Examine my heart. Am I treating needy people solely with mercy or is there a little bit of judgment in there? Lord, change me. I need to be more like you. Next, motivation. There's a big danger in giving a talk like this and that's that you're all going to leave feeling really guilty. And that's hopeless, isn't it? That doesn't please God at all. I think that a better motivation for us to help other people is out of the grace we've received. We were spiritually destitute. We, had, we couldn't help ourselves. And yet Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake and he laid down his life on the cross as we were thinking about earlier. And when we reflect on the mercy and the grace we've received, we're able to love because he first loved us. And it's really important that whatever we do, we do as if it's for Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, he talks, gives his parable about helping others and how that's effectively helping him. He, he says, then the righteous will answer him, that's the king in the story, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Helping needy people is a long and difficult journey often. Sometimes the people you try to help may not always be grateful. I don't even know Frank Clark at Sickup, but last summer he was preaching and told us memorably about this occasion when he gave his sandwiches to a needy person and literally had them thrown back at him. Um, it's quite a funny story. If you meet him, you just ask him to. I couldn't tell it the way he does. But Sometimes you might feel like somebody you're trying to help is making progress and then they might end up right back where they started. 
And to be really honest, if we are serving because we're predominantly looking deep down, we're looking for some kind of thanks and appreciation from other people, we may be disappointed. If we're primarily looking for results, although we do believe that Jesus can transform lives, but we could end up feeling like we failed. But if we do everything for, for Jesus to say, Lord, all this service that I'm giving isn't actually to these people. It's for you. It's you I've set my heart on. It's you I'm directing this towards. Then we know that he appreciates it. We know that he recognizes it. And we have his promise that one day you will be rewarded. I want to return to the story of the people who uptake the paralyzed man to Jesus because I think it provides us with some uh, insights into this field. The first is they chose a need. If you read through the Gospels, it's actually quite um, staggering, really, how many needy people there were. Overwhelming need. But the men in this story, why did they choose to help the paralyzed man? There, there were probably other people that they could have helped, but no, they chose him. Maybe they were friends of this guy. We don't know. They had to focus their efforts on one person and not everybody else. Sometimes when we think about poverty, like those statistics I read, it can seem an overwhelming ocean of need. And you can think, how can I possibly make a difference? But there's that story that many of you will have heard about the, uh, the beach where there's thousands of starfish washed up on it and then they go back into the sea, they're all going to die. And a little boy is throwing a few of them back into the ocean. And an old man comes up to him and says, look, there's thousands of them. How can you possibly make a difference? And he says... Well, I made a difference to this one, and I made a difference to that one. Faced with many, many needs, perhaps the best thing is to prayerfully consider some areas which we can help in, to focus on some particular needs and ministries. We cannot, as individuals or as a church, meet every need, but we can prayerfully ask God to show us what we should focus on. Second, they took the paralyzed man to Jesus. This paralyzed man couldn't help himself. But actually, his friends couldn't really help him either. They couldn't make him better. The only one who could really help was Jesus. I'm going to tell you some thoughts on something, and, and you are welcome to disagree if you, if you do, but these are my thoughts. I think it's great to give of our time and our money to help needy people because in doing so, we express the character and the nature of God. So it's great to give to charities, any charity that helps the poor and needy. The Good Samaritan, in the story Jesus told, gave uh, help and money without seeking to, to minister to the man's spiritual state. And, he, and the Good Samaritan is commended for it. But ultimately, the only person who can really resolve things is Jesus. So I think it's even better if the charities that we're working with or the project we're involved in is with the ultimate aim of influencing people to recognize Jesus as their savior. Now, it doesn't mean that that has to be absolutely at the front end of, of things, but that there is a, a, an ultimate aim of bringing people to recognize Jesus as their savior. That's my, my opinion. Next, I had faith for transformation. In the passage, it says of the guys that brought the paralyzed man, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. These guys had faith that if they could just get this man to Jesus, then anything could happen. He could be completely transformed. Whatever we do in this area, 
It's great if we can have faith. Faith that the little that we have can be transformed. James uh, preached a couple of weeks ago about, uh, uh, he, he talked about the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes and how God is able to multiply the little that we have and turn it into something extraordinary. And in this space, if we do it in faith, God is able to multiply what we do. Next, they worked as a team. They didn't try and help this paralyzed guy on their own. Can you imagine trying to drag a paralyzed man on your own in the hot sun of the Middle East? I mean, it's just be ridiculous. They needed a team to help to share the load. And often we're best helping the needy in teams. Now, obviously, the Good Samaritan story, again, is one of an individual, one-off act of kindness for somebody. Fantastic. Please um, be uh, open to doing that sort of thing. It's wonderful. But I think often with helping the needy, it's good to do it in a team. When we started the winter or night shelter that we have done for a couple of years, between January and March, helping homeless people one night a week, Charlie January, who runs it, was telling me that he had loads of offers of help. Not just the obvious things of people who are willing to stay there and make sure the guys were okay, but also people, say, volunteering to provide and then wash towels. Now, I'd never even thought of that, but what... Charlie's point was that he had lots and lots of offers and it meant that something that could have been a real burden was shared out among many people in our church and we were able to, do, to, to, to help in this way. We're able as a church to do more together than we could do alone. We've all got different skill sets. We can work as a body ministering in this way. We also need to think about boundaries Sometimes we get put off helping because we think we're going to end up with it taking over our lives. Oh, if I help the homeless, does that mean I've got to have homeless people living in my house? I don't think I'm ready for that. So we end up either backing off or some people end up taking on too much and then feeling burnt out. A book about this sort of subject I really recommend you reading is by Philippa Stroud called God's Heart for the Poor. And she talks in there about... Uh, some ministries that they set up, including some hostels for homeless and so forth. And she's very open and honest about all the mistakes that they made, about not having proper boundaries of people taking too much on and getting burnt out. In the story Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan helps the man who's been beaten up. He provides for him, but his help isn't open-ended. He doesn't cancel his business trip. He's very clear on what he is and he isn't prepared to do. And I think it's really important when we get involved in this that we prayerfully consider what we're happy to do and what we're not happy to do and to feel at peace about it. You see, you can sometimes look at other people and the sort of Jackie Pullinger type of people and you say, oh, that's amazing, I could never do that. You know, I feel like, like that when I look at people like her. But God has given her capacity to do that. I don't believe that he's given me capacity to do that. But what is the Lord asking me to do? What is he asking you to do right now? If you're married, please be very sensitive to what your spouse is happy for you to get involved in. Lastly, someone initiated. You think about this scene. Somebody must have come up with the ideas. Why don't we take Fred to Jesus? Why don't, why don't we... All get together, guys, and take him. And some, maybe somebody else organized a team of people. 
And then when they got near to Jesus, they found there was a massive problem. There was a big crowd, and they couldn't get through to him. And somebody must have come up with a fantastically creative idea of going and taking the tiles off the roof and, and lowering him down. I mean, it was uh, you know, a pretty radical idea, very controversial, but it was very effective. I believe that God is saying to New Community, prophetically, that there will be people in this church who will be really great at starting off initiatives. And there'll be people who are equally important who get behind those initiatives as part of a team. And then there'll be other people, maybe people already in that team or maybe people from outside, who come up with some great ideas as to, you know, and often in these types of ministries, you reach a certain stage and then it feels like there's an obstacle. And I believe that God is going to inspire some of us in new community to say, yeah, why don't we do it this way? And that's going to help bring people to Jesus. Some of you, by the way, have gained fantastic skills through your work or other life experiences. And you may find that you're able to help a, a charity by being a trustee. You know, if you've got knowledge in the area of finance, IT, legal, HR, and safeguarding, to, to name just a few, you could really, really help uh, charities in that way. Um, where's Tunde? Tunde's a charity for Macomberero. Uh, and uh, able to bring some of his expertise to that charity. I think some people in New Community will end up leading projects who aren't necessarily leaders in other contexts. You might say, well, I could never lead a prayer meeting, but actually I'm really burning with this idea to do something with the community or with needy people. I believe that God is going to speak to people in our church and cause you to, to burn with something to uh, take it forward. We want, as an eldership team, to release you to initiate, to come up with ideas to maybe start communities or help with existing projects. A number of, of projects that we're involved in that you can get behind. Um, actually, a couple of things I forgot to mention that stick up this morning that aren't on, on the, there. One is Love Bexley, which Lu Lucy Hewitt is involved in, and that involves finding out about various types of need um, so she was telling me this morning that she provided uh, some uh, clothes and, excuse me, some toys to a very deprived family in, in Thamesmead uh, just this week. Uh, there's the Bexley Winter Shelter. That's, uh, as I mentioned, a community project running from January to March, providing overnight accommodation, evening meal, breakfast, and packed lunch for homeless men. Community meal, providing hot evening meal once a week. Food bank, providing tinned and dried food to individuals or families for three days or more. There's debt counselling. Sidcup Debt Advice is a charity uh, that we're involved in as a church, but with other churches as well. And it's only just opened, but they've already been inundated with inquiries of people needing help. Uh, International Justice Mission, or IJM, that's a fantastic charity which works to protect the poor from violence and injustice in other nations. Macomberero, I mentioned Tunde's involved in that. So a couple who were around at SIGCUP who came out to the UK from Zimbabwe have gone back to Zimbabwe and they're providing educational opportunities in Zimbabwe. That's a great charity. You can sponsor a child in another country. 
And then there's Home for Good, which encourages families to provide loving homes for children in care. And also in a couple of, not on the slide, but a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be running a bereavement day talking about helping people who have uh, been bereaved. Um, one other thing is that at an elders meeting a few months ago, we felt this real prophetic stirring about taking to the gospel to people on the fringe of our society who might be considered outsiders like refugees or similarly cut off from mainstream culture. Just think about that verse from Deuteronomy where it says, um, the Lord loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. It was a real God moment at this elders meeting. We thought, yeah, God, you're, you're calling us to reach out to those people. But since then, to be perfectly honest, we haven't known exactly how we should respond. So maybe the Lord will inspire you in that area. Jesus is the one who makes a difference. He's the one who brings good news to the poor. We're his body, his community. Just like Israel was called to be a light to the nations in displaying care for the needy, so we are called to be a light in our love, care, and generosity. We're already doing some great things, but God's word to us is to move on in this area, to press on with more. Dave Devonish writes, Church-based social action demonstrates to the world what the church is intended to be, a community that not only cares for its own members, but seeks to bless the world in many different ways. Okay, I'm going to do something I, I wasn't originally intending to do. Uh, Tunde, can you just come up for a sec? And Cyril and Emily, anybody else work for a charity or is involved in a major way with a charity? So do you want to, can you just tell us a little bit about Macomberero for one minute? Macomberero is a, it's a charity that was set up by Mark and Laura Albertine. So basically we help uh, kids who are in all levels, uh, but are hampered by limited funds to have access to uh, A-level education. So we work in partnership with three private schools and they provide them with a free A-level education. So we support them in, in the, we take them out of their rural context and support them in the schools. And we also provide other support through like mental support, uh, you know, welfare support. And ultimately, like you said, the goal is to introduce them to Christ. So we try to model the love of Christ in serving them. I'm a chair of trustees of a small charity that works mainly into a township in uh, just outside Cape Town. Laya is our uh, administrator. So we work by supporting uh, preschool education. We do uh, <coughs> work for in various areas, but for supporting communities in, in the area. Uh, yeah, I work for a charity in London called Thames Reach, who work with the homeless. And I'm currently working in Westminster, Kensington, Chelsea, working with the most entrenched homeless people. Um, so just just housed a guy in Plumstead, actually, so I was noting down things I can get him plugged into. Um, but we work along them for a couple of years, giving them some continuity and trying to get them to be re-motivated to actually pick themselves up and, uh, and try and get their lives back on track. Um, I work for Christian Solidarity Worldwide, which is a charity... Um, that focuses on advocacy for the right to freedom of religion or belief. Um, so we work um, all around the world in places where um, uh, minority faiths, whether that be um, Christians or other um, religious minorities, are persecuted 
maybe by the state or by um, ma the majority religious groups in the countries. And so um, we train people so that they know what their rights are and, um, yeah, try to seek change for, the, um, for those people in those situations. Thanks for speaking at such short notice. So what I'd like us to do is to, we've got a few minutes at the end, is to gather around these four. If um, I've missed you out somehow and, and uh, you would like to be prayed for or you're feeling a real stirring, if you come out as well and then we'll gather around um, these uh, four in, in, in different groups and pray for God to, to help them uh, in the work that they're doing. But also, of course, not forgetting that God may wish to speak to you about you doing uh, some more stuff. So can we do that? Can we come out and, and gather around and pray? <clears throat>